0: Well, please open your Bibles and turn to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 7 is where we have come to in our week-by-week feasting upon God's Word. It is good for the soul to be strengthened, not by foods, which cannot strengthen the soul, but by grace. And the grace of God flows to us through the power cord of faith. But faith must be in the right object, and the proper object of faith is the Word of God. That's why we read the Word of God. That's why we meditate upon the Word of God. That's why we teach the Word of God, because it is the Word of God that is powerful to save the soul, to restore the soul, to strengthen the heart of the believer. May God do that work among us this morning. The key verse here in our text today in Mark chapter 7 is verse 8. Please direct your attention to Mark chapter 7 verse 8. Jesus says, You, speaking to the religious teachers, the Pharisees, the scribes, you leave the commandment of God and hold to their tradition of men. That is the key thought that is going to be our focus, our theme this morning is to recognize that there is a man-made religion, there are many man-made religions in the world that are the object of people's religious devotion and their religious faith. Many who are in the world who are people of faith, as the phrase is used in our time, are not people of faith in the Word of God, but they are people of faith in the traditions of men. And we're going to find out that faith in the traditions of men is not salvific. It is not virtuous. It is not a good thing. If you meet someone and they say, well, I'm a person of faith, don't automatically say to them, oh, that's good. It's not good if their faith is not in the word of God. And we must help people to recognize this and we must guard our hearts and guard our church from the traditions of man which so easily replace the word of God. Let's read the text starting there in chapter 7 verses 1 through 8. The confrontation. You'll see what leads to that key verse there in verse number 8. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Quite a confrontation that we have here. Notice in verse 1 that some of the scribes from Jerusalem are there with the Pharisees. So perhaps the Pharisees are more local, they're Galilean group, and they've been watching and observing Jesus. Jesus has already made several trips to Jerusalem at this point in his ministry, but his base of operations is in Galilee and Capernaum. And so there's a, a delegation of scribes from Jerusalem who appear to have come for the express purpose of interacting with Jesus testing him, finding out more about his positions in order to report back to Jerusalem what is it that's going on here in the synagogues of Galilee, what is this new miracle worker doing and teaching, and is this something that we need to be concerned about? And as they're there watching Jesus, they notice that, as it says in verse 2, some of his disciples ate with unwashed hands, that is, defiled hands. Now, this word for defiled, you could also translate as unclean, the Greek word that it's based upon is the word koinos, which means common. And so what was common in the Jewish mindset, according to the law and the traditions, was what was not sanctified, what was not cleansed, that the Jews, in light of their understanding of scripture, saw the world as an unclean place, that the world was a world full of sin, and that Everything needed to be cleansed. And while the Old Testament law had dietary restrictions between clean and unclean, common and and what is holy, and they had ceremonial washings in the temple, what the scribes and the Pharisees had done is that they had introduced other teaching outside of or in addition to the law of God on these matters and the traditions of the elders had become a fence around the law. That was the actual terminology that the rabbis used to describe the tradition of the elders. They, in their viewpoint, were holding the law of God to be so holy, and they were doing all that they could to maintain personal holiness and to keep the law, that they decided the best idea would be to build a fence around the law So that not only are you not transgressing the law, but you're not getting anywhere near transgressing the law. And these traditions had a lot to do with these ceremonial washings that Mark describes for his Roman audience. Remember, the Gospel according to Mark was written in Rome to a a church that was probably largely Gentile. And so Mark takes the time to explain some of the ethnic peculiarities of the Jewish people especially those who were living in Palestine. So they wash everything. They wash their hands. They wash what they bring from the marketplaces. He even mentions the dining couches, that they have a special way of washing those so that everything that is part of their diet is not only kosher according to the law, but is also washed and their hands are washed according to these traditions that have been handed down from their ancestors, the elders. And Jesus does not hold to these traditions. Now, in one occasion, recorded in the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus was invited to dine at the house of a Pharisee. And Luke informs us that the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not wash before dinner. Now, for you, those of you who are parents with young children and who are always teaching them to wash before dinner, I apologize for today's sermon. It seems to be encouraging your children not to wash before they have dinner. Well, we're not talking about health concerns here. We're talking about religious concerns. If you're teaching your children to wash their hands for religious considerations, well then, I am here to dissuade you and your children of that practice. If you want your family to wash their hands before they eat because of health considerations, feel free. And that's what we're going to discover as we go throughout this passage, that that these are two different areas, and Jesus is going to make that very clear. But these were ceremonial washings that were developed on the basis of some of the Old Testament laws. For when it came to the worship at the temple and the ministry of the priests, there were certain washings that the priests went through in order to ceremonially, to religiously cleanse themselves for their priestly service. And this was a picture, a portrait of how those who are involved in the service of God and holy things need to be spiritually clean. It's a metaphor. But the Pharisees thought, well, if it's good for the priests in the temple to be ceremonially clean and to do these washings, it's good for everybody. So let's just extrapolate from the law and build this fence around the law so that we're even more holy as a people of God. They decided they wanted to be Extra holy, more holy than what the Bible commands actually said. And the Jewish teachers, like these Pharisees, like the one who invited Jesus to dinner, they are surprised. They're astonished that this this good religious man, this rabbi, as he's come to be, teaching throughout the synagogues, that he's not holding to to the traditions of the elders. Now apparently, according to Mark, this Pharisaic practice of ritual washing had gained almost universal support among the Jews. Notice what he says in verse 3. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. There appears from the text of Scripture, although some people, according to history, would argue with Mark, but I'll just go with Mark rather than some people's reading of history. But according to the Word of God here, it appears that the Pharisees had gotten almost universal adoption of this practice. And they were probably pretty, pretty proud of that pretty happy that we've gotten every observant Jew to follow these traditions of the elders. But if a prominent teacher comes along, you know, he's the new YouTube sensation. Everybody's talking about it. He's trending. And, and his disciples are not following the washings. Uh-oh, this could lead to a movement. This could spread. We might have pretty soon nobody following the tradition of the elders. And, and wouldn't that be awful? And we might lose some of our prestige and reputation if everybody decides they don't need to listen to us and what we've taught them and they start going a different direction so this is actually a threat to the scribes and the pharisees and they are concerned about it not only because of their religiosity but they're also concerned about it because of their position and their pride and jesus recognizes that would it have been easy for jesus to just go along with this tradition sure it's not hard to wash your hands before you eat. Why make waves? Why rock the boat? Everything Jesus does is deliberate. He didn't just say, oh, oh, I forgot. I, I, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll wash our hands next time. No. Jesus had set the pattern for the disciples. He deliberately didn't wash his hands before the dinner when he was invited in Luke chapter 11. And his disciples are watching him and they're probably talking about it. saying, Why aren't you doing it? And he was explaining to his disciples, well, that's not in the Word of God. And I don't want to add to the Word of God. And I don't want you guys to be doing that. And these men who were religious Jews, they'd been in synagogue their whole life, it was probably hard for Jesus' disciples to stop washing their hands before dinner. They just, I feel dirty. I feel like I'm not ceremonially clean because I've always been told this is what we have to do and I've always done this. So it probably took some courage on the part of his disciples. Notice it doesn't say all of his disciples. Some of his disciples were not washing before eating. So there's a few brave ones that are like, well, Jesus didn't wash his hands when he ate with that Pharisee, so we're not going to wash our hands either. And we'll see what happens, you know? And what happens is is that the religious leaders go to Jesus, and they're like, hey, how come your disciples aren't following the tradition of the elders? Get with the program. Now, notice Jesus' response. Does Jesus apologize? Does he defend the practice? No, he does not. He goes on the attack. Rather than answering their question, he attacks their position. He says in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Oh, wow. Okay. That's how we're going to do this, huh? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Ooh, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. Probably not the answer they were expecting, right? These are the religious leaders from Jerusalem. They're not used to being talked to this way. No one has ever talked to them this way. I'd say it was slightly less cordial than they were used to. And these are fighting words. Now, some evangelicals appear to be more Christian than Christ. Perhaps we've gone too far with our nice guy routine. Nice is not a fruit of the Spirit. Nice guys finish last. Maybe we should spend less time apologizing and defending ourselves and more time on the attack. Maybe we need some men who are not cowards who will stand up and tell people the truth. That's what Jesus did. This isn't the only place where Jesus has fighting words for the scribes and the Pharisees. It's all throughout the Gospels. The most remarkable being Matthew chapter 23. Remember what he said in public. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Yeah, you wash, you clean. You're following all the ceremonies. But your heart is full of greed and wickedness. You appear righteous to men, but God sees your heart, is what God spoke to these religious hypocrites. Are you courageous to speak to religious hypocrites in your time, in your place? Will you be like the Lord Jesus Christ and confront evil? Or will you be the nice guy? The quotation in verses 6 through 8 is from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah 29, verse 13 is where Isaiah says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Bible is sometimes accused of being anti-Semitic. as a famous passage in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians where he has some very strong words against the Jews. Well, the New Testament is not the only part of the Bible that has some very strong words against the Jews. Have you read the Old Testament? The stiff-necked and hard-hearted people of Israel has been the recurrent theme of the Bible from the days of Moses all the way down to today. And to point it out is not to be anti-Semitic. There's nothing anti-Semitic about Jesus' words here. His words are anti-rabbinic and there's a difference. I can criticize Catholics without being anti-Italian. I can criticize secular humanists without being anti-American. Don't confuse the religion with the people. Jesus Christ can criticize these Jewish rabbis and have unlimited love in his heart for his Jewish brothers and sisters. And in fact, it is his love for the people of Israel that causes him to rebuke the rabbinic Judaism of his day. Just as the Christian missionary preaching in Italy today, it is his love for the people of Italy that causes him to cross the ocean, to learn the language, to travel the streets, to start the churches that are preaching the word of God and not holding to the traditions of men. In verses 8 and 9, where Jesus accuses them, of correctly accuses them, of leaving the commandment of God and holding to the tradition of men, he repeats it. He says in verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And in these verses, Jesus categorically rejects the authority of the oral law. So when you're looking at judaism in the time of christ they had the written law and they had the oral law and they thought that these were both authoritative you've got to hold to the authority of the written word but you also have to submit yourself to the authority of the oral law the traditions of the elders and jesus says nope the oral law has no authority and in fact, the oral law, Jesus says, is actually a hindrance to obedience to the written law. That whenever you set up competing authorities, what you're going to do is you're going to limit the authority of, of one. There can be no rival to the authority of God's word in the heart of God's people. Let me say that again. There can be no rival to the authority of God's Word in the heart of God's people. Anytime you put something else on a level playing field with the authority of God's Word, what you will end up doing, by necessary consequence, is destroying the authority of God's Word. If you say, well, we believe in God's Word, but we also believe in the Book of Mormon. These are incompatible. You can't serve two masters. They teach different things. You can't have both as the authority. And so when they conflict, you have to choose. Which one am I going to obey? And what happens so often? People choose the Book of Mormon instead of the authority of Scripture. They don't see it, though. They don't see it. It happens on a subconscious level. These scribes, these Pharisees who were listening to Jesus, and he points the finger at them and says, you have a nice way of setting aside the Word of God in order to keep your traditions. And they would have said, like what? There is nothing in God's word that we don't protect. There is nothing in God's word that we wouldn't die to defend. What are you talking about, Jesus? He says, well, let me give you an example. Isn't it good of the Lord Jesus Christ to give us an example? One of many. He could have written a whole book on the ways that God's word was set aside by the traditions of the Jewish rabbis. But for our sake, for the sake of keeping the Bible within 9,000 pages he gives us one let's see what it says mark chapter 7 verses 9 through 13 sometimes the best defense is a good offense here we go he said to them you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of god in order to establish your tradition then it's fighting words for moses said honor your father and your mother we had it read in our scripture reading from Exodus chapter 20. This is the fifth commandment. And then Jesus further establishes the importance of God's word as a matter of life and death. When he quotes also from Exodus chapter 21, just one chapter after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Exodus 21:17 is where the law is clarified that if you revile your father or mother, you must surely die. The Ten Commandments just tell you what you must do. It doesn't tell you what the penalty is if you don't do it. But we find then throughout the rest of the law that there are certain commandments that are so important that capital punishment was the law in God's nation, Israel, for breaking that. And so Jesus highlights the extreme significance of honoring your father and your mother. Children, myself included, my parents are here today, this command is important. This command is the word of God. Your attitude towards your parents is largely reflective of your attitude towards God. You cannot love God if you dishonor your parents. You might be the leader of a worship band, you might be the preacher in a church, you might have written Christian books, but if you don't honor your father and your mother, you are not a Christian. You owe a lot to your parents. Jesus holds this as a sacred command of God and he is infuriated by the way that Jewish tradition has nullified the effect of God's word. Some commentators like to go really light on this because they don't want to offend Jewish people. But if Jesus is to be trusted, as I believe that he is, let me tell you about what he's talking about here. The Jews had this teaching that if you're a man in charge of your household and you've got a measure of wealth, If at some point in your life you decide, when I die, everything I own is going to the temple. Everything I own is going to the synagogue. Everything I own is going to the service of God. It's Corban. It's devoted to God as a special gift to him. Now while I'm alive, it's still mine. It's just my inheritance is not going to anyone else. It's just going to God. And so if somebody did this, the Jews actually taught that then, because their money had been given to God as a whole total, that they no longer had to support elderly parents from their substance. This is like a tele-evangelist type of corruption and greed. Who benefits from this system? The religious leaders benefit from this system. Who suffers as a result of this system? Family suffers as a result of this system. And how many religious hucksters are there in the world today who are saying, you give to God and God will take care of you and your family. You put me and my ministry first and I'll make sure that God takes care of you. And they're stealing from gullible people and inheritances are lost and elderly parents are destitute because the fool and his money is soon parted by the wickedness of the false teacher spreading lies. This is corrupt. This is wickedness. This isn't just some misguided human tradition. This is greed. You Pharisees wash the outside of the cup, but inside you are full of greed, Jesus said. Jesus will correct the Jewish misunderstanding of defilement and the law in verses 14 through 23. Let's read those. The third part of our outline, Jesus teaches on defilement. The Jews thought eating with unwashed hands would defile somebody. They had taught the people that eating with unwashed hands would defile you. They were amazed that Jesus was not ceremonially clean, but that his disciples were being defiled by not holding to the traditions of the elders. And so, verse 14, he called the people to him again. Notice he's not calling the scribes and the Pharisees. He's not going to waste his time trying to teach them. They're not teachable. They're not interested. They're not open. But he is concerned about the people. He wants to make sure that the people are not led astray by the false teachers. And so he calls the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person, those are what defile him. He wants the people to be clear. He wants the people to understand. He calls everyone to make this special point because he knows that the scribes and the Pharisees are going to be talking about this. He knows what's going to be the subject of the synagogue and the sermon on the following Saturday that you better be washing your hands... And keeping the traditions of the elders so that you can honor God and keep away from transgressing God's laws with this fence that we've built around it. Don't be like Jesus and His followers. Hold to the traditions, brothers. And so Jesus, He calls all the people and He he says, I want you to hear me. I want you to understand. Who are you going to listen to? There is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. It's not what your hands touch, it's the sin that your heart commits and brings into action through your hands. The heart of the matter is always the matter of the heart. You can distinguish true religion from the commandments of men by this standard. Religion is always going to devolve into externalism. It's always going to focus on rituals. It's always going to focus on actions. It's always going to focus on sacramentalism. That it's by doing certain things or having certain things done to you that you receive grace. It is not. The only means of grace is faith in God's Word. The only means of grace is faith in God's Word. Salvation begins by faith, continues by faith, it ends by faith because faith is a matter of the heart and it's the most fundamental matter of the heart. If you trust God, you will be saved. If you don't trust God, you will be lost. That is the nature of God's work and God's salvation. Jesus categorically denies Judaism's view of ritual defilement. The Jews had thought, the Jews had taught that you could be defiled by touching certain things. And in fact, they got this idea from the Old Testament law, did they not? Does not the Old Testament law say that if you touch a dead body, you are defiled? Does not the Old Testament law say that if you touch a leper, you are defiled? Does not the Old Testament law have sacrifices and offerings for cleansing? There's a lot of teaching in the Old Testament on ritual cleanness. And here, Jesus sets it all aside. He says, no, you are not defiled by touching a dead body. You are not defiled by eating pork. You are not defiled by eating with unwashed hands. You're not defiled by having a skin disease. None of those things defile you, Jesus taught. You say, well, how does that work? Why did God say in the Old Testament that there were these defilements and that the Jews couldn't eat these things or they would be ceremonial and And now Jesus is saying that all foods are clean. I thought that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I thought that Jesus said that not one jot or tittle was going to pass away from the law until all was fulfilled. How can Jesus contradict what Moses wrote? Now we're going beyond the traditions. Now he's declaring all foods to be clean. That wasn't a tradition. That was law. You can read it in Leviticus chapter 11 and Leviticus chapter 17. That's God's word. Jesus never said that the law and all of its ceremonies were going to be forever. He said it was all going to be fulfilled. And being fulfilled is not the same thing as lasting forever. Jesus and the new covenant, which was predicted in the Jewish scriptures by the prophets of God, the new covenant is new because it replaces the old covenant. And God had told us that he was going to replace the Old Covenant in the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as well as Isaiah. And so when the Old Covenant is ended, then many of those elementary principles that were a part of the Old Covenant are no longer necessary. You know, when your kids are five years old, you have certain rules for them that you don't have for them when they're 15 years old. You say, well, Dad, I thought you said bedtime was 8 o'clock. Well, you're older now. Bedtime is now 9 o'clock. Well, why are you contradicting yourself? Why are you changing the laws? Well, because times have changed. We're in a different situation. And when God gave the Old Testament law to the people of Israel, they were infants, they were spiritual children, and he had to teach them basic principles of holiness and unholiness. But those laws were never intended to give a magical view of the world. They were intended to be metaphors. They were intended to be spiritual pictures. But the people of Israel, who were misled by their teachers, misunderstood the metaphor as if it was the real thing. They misunderstood the picture as if it was the substance of what God was actually communicating. And that's here what Jesus is clarifying. Jesus is not destroying the law. He's properly interpreting the law. And he's letting them know that God never wanted you to think That just by eating pork, you were spiritually defiled. No, this was a practical consideration that was going to keep you as a nation ethnically distinct from the other nations so that you didn't participate in their pagan worship. It had a practical purpose, aside from the fact that it was an illustration of the difference between what is clean and unclean. They didn't understand the issue of the illustration. Now, I want to share with you also this verse from Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15 is where we have the same account that Mark has here in chapter 7. It takes Matthew 15 chapters to get to where Mark gets in seven chapters. And Matthew includes this that was not included in the gospel according to Mark. He says, the disciples, they came to Jesus after their confrontation, Jesus' confrontation, and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And I'm sure Jesus was scratching his head going, oh yeah, I had no idea that uh, I said anything offensive. Thank you for letting me in on that. What's behind this question, do you know that they were offended, is do you know how much they were offended? Do you really want to bring down this heat over this issue? Is kind of what they're implying with Jesus. And notice Jesus' answer again. he's, He's not really concerned about the heat. He said, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He doesn't want the people to be following the blind guides. He doesn't hold out much hope for the blind guides, but he's holding out hope for the people and he's teaching them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. But notice that the disciples, he's got hope for the people, he thinks his disciples understand what he's talking about, but they don't. The disciples later are saying, well, explain to us the parable. It wasn't a parable, guys. I was just speaking plainly. There's no hidden meaning, there's no secret truth here. What I said was what I meant. There's nothing that going into you can defile you. And the disciples, their mind is blown. They don't get it. And I know they don't get it because... Years later, God has to teach Peter this lesson again. We won't go there for time's sake, but Acts chapter 10 is a key chapter there in the book of Acts as the Jewish church learns the lessons that Jesus is talking about right here. And they're starting to understand that the old covenant has passed away and the new covenant has been inaugurated, that all foods are now clean. And so Peter is on his rooftop praying. He's having a sweet hour of prayer. And he has a vision from god a revelation because he's an apostle don't expect visions and revelations when you're having your sweet hour of prayer you're not an apostle or a prophet but peter he gets this vision where god brings down from heaven all of these unclean animals on a picnic blanket right and tells him to eat and peter says by no means lord no not going to do it god for i am (laughs) never eating anything that is common or unclean he thinks he's being tested he thinks God is trying to see, do you love me? Are you faithful? Here's all this good food. Eat. And he says, oh, no, God, I love you. I'm not going to eat thing unclean. And uh, no, that's not the point, Peter. You're missing the point here again. And God has to repeat and say, the voice came to him again a second time. And it didn't say, good on you for keeping the dietary laws. It said, what God has made clean, do not call common. We're in a new age. Things have changed, Peter. You Jewish people are not supposed to be spiritual infants anymore. You're supposed to have learned the lesson of making a distinction between what is common and what is holy, and now you're ready to actually live holy lives, and you don't need the elementary lesson. Get out of grade school. Welcome to high school. Learn to differentiate between the physical and the spiritual. God never wanted to create a culture that viewed the world as magical. Oh, don't touch this, or you're going to get defiled. You know, we as Christians, we fall into this. I was at a pastor's conference in the group that we used to belong to, and the men that they invited in to teach us on spiritual warfare said, you have to be careful about what objects you bring into your house. You know, if if somebody comes from Africa, and they they buy this little statue of a man in the marketplace, and that could have a demon attached to it. And and if you touch it and you bring it into your house, you could bring a demon into your house. And and this could be with your family for generations. You really got to be careful about these types of things. No, 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 no. There's nothing that you can touch that is going to defile your house. I could go out today and buy a Ouija board and bring it into my house and put it in the middle of my dinner table and it does not defile anything. It's cardboard. It's wood. It's nothing. Now, if I, from my heart, try to contact the spirit world by using the tool of the Ouija board, the evil is coming out of my heart. It's not coming from the Ouija board. Don't get this magical worldview. There's nothing you can touch that's going to spiritually defile you. There's nothing you can eat that is going to spiritually defile you. I want you to eat healthy. But if you eat unhealthy, your problem is not the unhealthy food, spiritually speaking. The problem is you might be a glutton, right? The problem isn't in the food, the problem is in your heart. True religion is always a matter of the heart. Another verse that's important here is Colossians chapter 2, where Paul also gives us this teaching. Mark records it for us. Paul taught it. It took the church a while to learn this, but hopefully we've got it. And that's where Paul wrote to the Colossians who were dealing with a heresy that seems to be a mixture of some of these Jewish traditions together with some Greek philosophical ideas, as religion always kind of gets mixed in with other religions. And so Paul had to write to the Colossians and say, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Now, if you have a Christian who wants to give you good, wise counsel on your diet, that's fine. But as far as spiritually speaking, you're not more holy if you eat vegetables or eat meat or anything like that. Being a vegan doesn't make anyone closer to God. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. If some Christian comes to you and says, hey, you're not keeping the Sabbath, you quote Colossians 2.17. I'm not allowed to let you be a judge over the Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. The Jewish people got distracted by the shadow and they missed the substance. Don't let that happen in your family or in our church. Jesus said this in the Gospel according to Luke. Give as alms those things that are within. If you want to give something to God, give your heart to God. You give your heart to God and behold, everything is clean for you. Give your desires, give your ambitions, give your love. Give your hate. Give everything that is within you to God and then everything is clean and you can't be defiled. Now defilement is the opposite of holiness. That's why we sang this morning, take time to be holy. And when you're taking time to be holy, you're taking time to root out the sin that is in your heart. Look at the sins that Jesus describes in verses 20 and following. It's from within, in verse 21, that come the evil thoughts When you're taking time to be holy, you're dealing with evil thoughts, putting them to death. Don't allow any wicked thought to dwell in your heart. Your job is to root it out. Your job is to kill it. You kill it with God's word. You kill it with truth. You kill it with meditation upon righteousness and goodness. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone and there's bitterness in your heart, then you need to spend time thanking God for the forgiveness that he has bestowed upon you and begging God for the grace to forgive the one who is hurting you. Work on your heart. That's what Jesus wants us to do, to be holy. If you have sexual immorality in your life, the problem is not the internet. The problem is not the temptress. The problem is not outside of you. The problem is in your heart. Deal with your heart. Do work on your heart. Root out the evil that is in there by the power of God, by the power of faith. If you've got theft in your heart that comes from the coveting, you deal with the heart issue. When you go to a Christian for counsel, whether it's a pastor or just a friend that's in the body of Christ, you're looking to deal with issues of the heart. You're not saying, change my situation change that person, you're saying, change my heart. That's true religion, is you changing your heart according to God's standards. God sees your heart, God knows your heart. He saw the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he saw that it was full of wickedness, and he spoke the truth to them that they needed to hear, but they would not listen to. Now, in the minutes that we have left, I do want to clarify that it's possible to take this teaching that we're talking about today too far and i want to warn you about becoming super spiritual in these matters and taking it beyond what jesus is intending what do i mean by that well turn with me to first corinthians chapter six in first corinthians chapter six there are some who grabbing hold of the apostles teaching paul's teaching on this subject that there's nothing outside of a man that can defile a man, but only what comes out of the heart. Some people took this to mean, well, that means we can commit sexual immorality as long as our heart is in the right place. Right? So I want to read for you what Paul has to say about that, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Notice Jesus condemned sexual immorality. He didn't just condemn immoral thoughts. He says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. You see, they're, they're picking up on what Jesus is saying here. It goes into the body, it's eliminated, it doesn't go into the heart. Food is clean. Let us go a step further, a step too far, and say this. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. They say, Therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with your body in sex. And Paul says, no, that's not the case. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Jesus' teaching that there's nothing outside of you that can defile you and that you don't have to wash your hands to be ceremonial or ritually clean does not mean that it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Any sexual immorality is unhealthy for your own body. It's unhealthy physically, it's unhealthy spiritually, it's self-destructive. And people wonder, you know, why are you Christians so hung up on sexual issues? Someone wants to love someone else and it's not hurting you, what business is it of yours? It's a business of love. I don't want people to be destroying themselves. And that's what sexual sin does. It destroys the self. And sin doesn't stay in one location. It spreads and it grows. And so we are opposing sexual immorality because of our love for those who were created to glorify God in their bodies and when we don't glorify God with our body there are lasting and uncontrollable consequences for that well, as we come to the end we want to do some application we want to discuss what does all of this mean for us and so i remind you that we've been using this tool lately when we look at scripture we want to see is there a sin that i need to confess is there a promise that i need to believe is there an example for me to follow Is there a command to obey? And is there knowledge about God that I need to retain and think about? So look at each one of those. Open up your Bible this week. Ask God. Look at the list of sins and say, Is there a sin that I need to confess? Holy Spirit, reveal any hidden way in me that is against you. Look into the scriptures and see, Can I follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in going on the offensive against false religion? as he does. Is there some command of Christ that I need to obey from this passage? And so let's take a moment as a group to examine our traditions. How is it that we make the same mistake of elevating our traditions to and above the Word of God? As you look around, even at the Protestant church, which is supposed to be founded on the Word of God, you find that so many churches have strayed from the Word of God. They claim to be Reformation churches built upon the principles of the Reformation, including Sola Scriptura. You look at their doctrinal statement and and it looks pretty solid and pretty sound. But then you look at their practices and they're disobeying the commands of the New Testament. They've set them aside because of their traditions. They told Timothy, can you give me an example? Female pastors. How many churches around us this morning in the neighboring counties are disobeying the command and the word of God by having a female pastor in the pulpit. You say, well, what's the difference, Timothy? Why is that an important thing? Does it matter if I can explain to you the importance, or does it matter that it's the word of God says so? If the word of God saying so is not enough for you, you might have to stop and ask yourself, what's my authority? Who is my authority? Is human reason my authority? Is what makes sense to me my authority? Is what seems to be good my authority? Is it what people around me believe or my family members believe that is my authority? What is determinative for your beliefs? Is it the Word of God or is it the traditions of men? Now, we live in what could be known as an untraditional society. And so a lot of people would read over this text and and they'd say, well, this is not a problem for us because we are totally against all of the traditional way of doing things. So Jesus is on our side here, destroying the traditions. He's not destroying traditions. He's destroying traditions of men. Man-made religion versus that which comes from the word of God. So easy for us to twist this, to get misunderstanding. And really the word tradition just means what is handed down from one person to another. So I hand this over to you. It's a tradition. And these non-traditional religions that are in our world today, and they are religions, they are functional religions, even if they're atheistic, they have their traditions. They have their sacred ideas that if you speak against or act against, they're going to say, hey, why aren't you keeping our traditions? Why don't you recycle Do you want to destroy the planet? Are you some kind of evil capitalist? Not recycling your garbage? That's a tradition that is handed down. Now, am I against recycling? No, I'm not against recycling. I only bring it up as an example of the way that human tradition comes in and becomes more important to people than the Word of God. You can go to a church this morning with a female pastor that's disobeying the Word of God and hear a sermon about recycling. Where's the authority here? Who's in charge of the church? Human traditions, that's what's in charge of the church. That's just one example. There could be a list of examples where if you speak against human tradition, if you deliberately don't recycle in front of a humanist, an environmentalist, in order to get into a conversation about their need for God who is going to save this planet then that might be a worthwhile sacrifice i might be willing to add a little bit of trash to our landfill in order to have an opportunity to witness to someone that's what jesus is doing here he's deliberately breaking taboos he's deliberately offending people in order to teach the truth to be a proclaimer of the truth let us do that don't be afraid to be an icon class don't be afraid to break human tradition if it's not in the Word of God, then don't let anybody be your judge according to it. But give what is within your heart to God and do everything out of love for God and do everything out of love for neighbor, and then you can do whatever you want, and it's right. Because your heart is right, and your heart is bound to the Word of God. You're not bound by human tradition. You don't have to do what they say. All you have to do is what this says. That's it. You're free. But do you know the difference between God's command and your tradition? It's easy to point out other people's traditions. but What about you? What about your traditions? What would be offensive to you if we did it in church this morning that has nothing to do with God's command? If I came in next week and I had a drummer on stage and we were doing guitar riffs, rocking out, would you find a different church? Can you give me scripture on that? Have our church started preaching 15-minute sermons? Where in the Bible does it say preachers got to go on for 45 minutes? Make my job a lot easier. Do you know the difference between tradition and the Word of God? It's important to be checking ourselves so that we don't become hypocrites. Honoring God with our lips, but having hearts that are far from Him. Don't think that it can't happen for you. It's a constant temptation. We have to guard our hearts carefully.